Welcome to Film Fight Club. I'm Glenn Falconstein for Falcon Screen, and we are joined by freelance writer and critic Virat Nehru. Hello, hello, people. And Sydney filmmaker Chris Evans. We're back again. Well, that music, we usually start with the Film Fight Club theme, but what was that nifty tune? It's Supernature by Sarone, which is used to score the dance sequence that opens Climax from Gaspar Noé, a film I spoke about in the extended podcast last week, and Virat's just been able to catch up with it because we've been catching up with some of the SFF movies we missed. What did you yeah, think? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I, I saw it in the popular demand uh, section because I wanted to maintain the joke that Climax would be the last movie at SFF that I ever saw. <laughs> okay. So to just to maintain the joke, I swapped out and saw Girl in my original SFF run and now saw Climax at Wednesday night. Uh, oh, my God. In a good way or a bad way? Uh, yeah, like initially in a very good way. Yeah, that's you know, how I felt you know, it, it, just, it just felt like there were two movies in one. But also Sophie Butella was fantastic. Yes. I, I did not rate her as an actress initially until this movie, and I could really see her incredible range. But, yeah. I had no patience for it in the end. It's yeah, because at first you're like, "This is so dynamic. This is fun. This is a new twist on the musical." And then, it, did you find it became monotonous? Because that was my main complaint. It was monotonous, but also I found it like it made me angry because uh, I just did not care about anyone. Yeah, you know? I, these I, were just terrible people doing terrible things, which just became boring. Yeah, I agree, and and like not enough of. When there's no motivation, you've got to be really cool to sustain audience interest. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but but also, like, the actual choreography sequences were fantastic. Yeah. And the use of music, like, this soundtrack, how prominently it features throughout the film is really cool and clever. I agree, yeah. And, and I would I actually wish... go on an acid trip with this kind of interesting... <laughs> Not that we're recommending this <laughs> at all. <laughs> I, rec- I I think it would have been great if... Um, I would go on a journey with these characters. Yes. Uh, journeys, I, I, yes. I, much, <laughs> much more civil than I'll just say G-rated. that I definitely would not like to have an acid trip with these characters, but I would... Um, I would, okay, the first half of the characters, <laughs> yeah. the second half, I, maybe not. I would like to have um, seen a choreographed movie musical horror movie. Like, I wish that they hadn't abandoned the dance premise. Cause... Yeah, because this this really made me feel like this was the rock opera that Season of the Devil promised, but this one was more like a rock opera for the first 20-odd minutes. Yeah, yeah. Um, I caught up with something that was also really well choreographed uh, that was an SFF, <laughs> and I, it's Lovely in segue. cinemas now. I would uh, suggest it to anyone listening. Um, Upgrade. Man, that was a good refresher after watching a billion dour art movies. Yeah. Upgrade is a very fun B-movie thriller. When it opened for the first, like, 15 minutes, I'm like, is this actually terrible because of the way that, you know, the, the way that <laughs> the level the acting is pitched at and the really, really dumb writing and horrible one-liners. But then you get into it and you realize, oh, they know what they're doing. Like, this is a movie made for people that do not care that you're watching trash. And then when you get into it, it's like, this is actually really fun. The... um you know the story has interesting twists the action's really well choreographed and the schlocky tone and shock gore and all of that it ends up being just right this is like a lost 80s director video movie but really good well this is actually this has one of the best scenes of the year for me this has that wonderful sequence where the character finally s- learns to use his powers and he can't believe it and he is doing it counterintuitively yep. and even reluctantly which is a very rare thing you see for an action film and yeah great th- concept this you know and also it's cool how this film builds a sci-fi world basically on no budget i was shocked to learn that the budget for this film was 3 million dollars um but look, it's really a, a low-budget Australian movie pretending to be a big-budget American movie. It's probably going to be the best Australian film of the year. It's it's, it's shot in Melbourne with an Australian writer-director yeah. and mostly Australian um, people involved, and, just American actors. And very strong Australian accents at times, but also yeah. um, the ending really stood out for me. I wasn't expecting anything this oh, interesting yeah, or yeah. clever, it, and it, definitely, it really went out of the park. Yeah, I was surprised. It ended in the best way that this story possibly could have ended. You mean this is a... Truly, an upgrade for Australian cinema. I would say so. Yeah. I, would, I would go with that. Yeah, this is look. This was done very well. Yeah, recommended. Um, recommended. So those who are us in the film festival films. The we'll also be talking about a number of other features in this program later. We'll be talking about disobedience and more extensively on our podcast, which you can check out on iTunes and podcasts everywhere. We'll also be chatting about the incredible, long-awaited, long-awaited Incredibles two, and we will be starting off with. The scariest film of the week, which is... Well, not really the scariest film of the week. I think Disobedience was scarier. (laughs) (laughs) I'll I'll pay that. Uh, We are talking about Hereditary, which is in cinemas now. 
Okay, so hereditary. Actually, before we get into that, I do want to mention one quick thing, and that is that the Nova Employment 10th Annual Focus on Ability Short Film Festival is on now. It's a great program. They run it every year. And this year, um, the voting is open for the best short film uh, from until July 3rd. You can check it out at their website, focusonability.com.au. And they've got 297 Australians and international entries, which is pretty impressive. So one of the great local film festivals that are happening post-SFF. So give it a shot and uh, check out some of the cool stuff that's going. And please do vote. Cool. So Hereditary, to really set you up for this film, I would be giving away the great twist that happens like 20 minutes or so into the film. So I won't do that. But um, I'll give you the setup instead. Tony Collette's character is grieving because her mother just died. Her mother is a weird, creepy old lady that um, nobody can praise with in a, with, without a backhanded twist, essentially. Um, she has a creepy daughter who seems primed to be the next in line of scary horror movie kids like Damon. And uh, Damien. <laughs> Damon. <laughs> Matt, so all Matt da- Damon. So all the Damons out there. Yeah, Damien. And uh, basically everyone everyone freaks out. That's the movie. That's the movie. Um, I, I, do, I don't want to give away more than the grandma dies and uh, cult happenings seem to be occurring around the house. A lot of cults, a lot of happenings. This was one of the most hyped films of recent times. I've got to say, though... In the cinephile community, at least. Definitely. Um, What is is the cinephile community? We are the cinephile community. People on Twitter, I guess. Our friends. uh, Follow us on Twitter. A wonderful place to film Twitter. I think a lot of people were talking about this as one of the scariest movies of all time. It's not. This is probably... I think this is the most overrated film of the year for me. This, Yeah, yeah. I'll say it. Um, I went in... Controversial opinions. Hashtag Glenn. Yeah, look, honestly, I I went in and I was excited for this film. I like Tony Collette. I like Gabriel Byrne. I like Alex Wolfe. And I like each of the actors in this film. However, this for me breaks the one of the cardinal rules of a horror film. There are a lot of allusions in this film to much better films like Rosemary's Baby, The Wicker Man, and to Great Effect, The Exorcist. Um, first-time mm-hmm. feature writer, director Ari Aster has taken a lot of very blatant homages to The Exorcist, which you will see when watching this film. And- blatant homages to Rosemary's Baby as well. Oh, my God. It's real. Like, I think the plot structure of this film is very close to Rosemary's Baby, with touches along the way homaging other horror films. A little too close. But what each of these films did really well was they started with gentle scares and then slowly escalated and escalated. So you had a great idea of increasing stakes and investment in the story. This did the exact opposite. About 25 minutes into this film, an event happens. And to be fair, this event is stupefyingly horrific. It's aghast. It's Mm. one of the worst things you'll see in a horror film for a while because, in two reasons, number one, it's just morbid and gross. On the other hand, good horror works, like in Rosemary's Baby, when you feed off social anxiety and this does this very yes, well. Yes. The problem comes that you know after having seen this that you're not going to see anything as scary for the next dreary 90 minutes and fairly so even for the rest of the year. I'm, I will see this may be one of the scariest things in cinema I will see for quite some time. And that may recommend the film unto itself. But there is, after that, it leaves you with a sense of numbness. There is no sense of stakes because you already know the worst thing you're going to see has already happened. I think there are good scares to come after that. It's just... The initial twist is basically there to set up family drama. And the family drama gets reasonably intense. The problem, the major problem with this film for me is that the horror that eventuates isn't very well connected to the family drama. Like, it's not furthering some kind of metaphor. It's uh, It feels like a bunch of horror movie cliches intruding upon a movie about a family tearing itself apart because of trauma and mental illness. The possibly the hereditary thing that the title is referring to. Um, but since there isn't really any tie between these, it end. yeah, I don't know. I think... I think this film works as a drama more than it does, it, in quite to extent, a horror film. I would very gladly have watched this as purely a drama. When you have excellent actors like Tony Collette, I think Gabriel Byrne, he's good. It's a very one that performance isn't really given anything to do here. But what would really let this down for me was Alex Wolfe. I mean, the guy's good in Jumanji and other things, but he is not a great dramatic actor. He, for is essentially the central figure in this film, and he cannot carry so many of the jump scares that occur. He's not that interesting, and most of the movie is is played on his face, but the thing is, Tony Collette's performance is pitched so over the top, right? So um, 
the, there's a bit of a contrast between Tony Collette really screaming it up and this guy who it, you know is a bit of a void of personality. The um, big issue that I was referring to about the clash between the family drama and the horror aspects of the movie is um, all right. Early on, the film announces what it's supposed to be about which is, I guess, the tragedy of not having agency and forces against your will working against you. Um, it's a bit of a cliche for films to have scenes set in a school where teachers are talking about the theme that this movie will be about. Um, so I was annoyed to see that pop up here. But... Um, I, I mean, it's... A lot of the characters, they don't go in directions that you... They sort of think the screenplay will go, and that's fine in and of itself. What is good about this? I will say what's good about this film: the production design. There's some beautiful use of miniatures in this film, um, and imagery which lends itself to this real or fake idea: what is going on, what is real, and is not real. But otherwise, um, I didn't too much care for it. Yeah, look, it's very visually good, but this is a very soulless film. The um, the production design is almost suffocating. The movie is, as I was saying before, really about this dark family drama, but you get the sense that the director doesn't actually care about his characters that much. Um, only So you feel cheated if you're able to invest in and care about these characters, which is hard because I think the film really lacks um, an emotional core or a sense of tragedy. And then ultimately when the horror starts to creep in in the second half of the movie and the focus changes from the family drama to the horror... Um, it feels like a betrayal of some sense because it doesn't relate really on a metaphorical level or in terms of any of the characters' motivations to what the primary setup of the drama has been about. And as I was saying before, there's this school scene that sets up that says, okay, this movie is about the tragedy of the lack of agency. But the problem is it doesn't register as tragedy. As I said, I'd compare this film to Rosemary's Baby in terms of its structure, but Rosemary's Baby was heavily about motive character you know drama of character motivations people being cruel to each other people who have the potential to escape doom but unable to make the right choice at the right moment whereas as we learn fairly early on based on the the twist that happens about 25 minutes into hereditary the characters in this film are up against a force that has an unreasonable level of control over the laws of nature and the universe so they're basically screwed no matter what they do. In a sense, that cheats the film from being able to work as a tragedy. And since the film has announced to the audience that this is meant to be taken as a tragedy, I feel like it fails on its own terms. Well, the jump scares to that extent are incredibly generic. Like, we've seen these, with yeah. the exception of the great twist we referred to all before. Um, and it works when you have good actors behind it. Millie Shapiro, uh, as the young woman, was excellent. I think she was quite under used but when you have this um very generic villain it's it's hard to get that is also very understandable it's hard to get a huge sense of investment in it Mm. and um the ending that ultimately comes i think we've been talking about how this is derivative of a lot of different horror movies rosemary's baby wicked man the exorcist and i would also say films like the conjuring this is a bit of an art house twist on them and i'd also even throw in the witch um, the ending of this reminded me quite a lot of The Witch. That was a much better film, though. Oh, The Witch is a much, much better film. But because The Witch was also trying to blend drama and horror, but was about the tragedy of characters making the wrong decision and doing the wrong thing to each other to push them towards some kind of tragedy, whereas this is just about people who are screwed. So it, you know, it's hard to care at a certain point when you realize that this is all a game Ari Aster is playing to mess with these characters with every horror movie monster he can think of. I think... A problem with this film is when the horror starts to creep in towards the end, it's not clear enough what the horror is because the threat and the the monsters and demons and ghosts and spirits and scary pop-out and freak-you-out imagery that they go up against shifts so that I think because Ari Aster is constantly trying to throw you with another scary thing. Is this real? Is it not? Is this real? Is and it that's not? predictable. You basically know what is you, real yeah, and not by exactly. a pretty early part in the film. Exactly. But he also throws too many different kinds of spooks at you. So instead of there being one thing that you can fixate on in your mind and let the fear of that thing play out, it's constantly shifting because it's comprised of a bunch of different horror movie cliches. So 
it, it feels like it goes a little bit much. Like the film could reach this point of being really freaky, but then you realize that it's just messing with you by pulling out like his his the conjuring type scare, his uh, you know the Rosemary's Baby s paranoia stuff. It's just endowed with her trademark. You know, <laughs> I'm going to unsettle lady. you just a little bit. Yeah, there's it just goes ultimately in too many directions. So what you're really afraid of is the touch of the director or the idea of fear itself. Um, I wish I could recommend this film more because I think there's a lot of things that it does well in terms of... Look, the score is great. Um, Visually, it's very beautiful. Um, And I think he's definitely a director to watch because technically there's a lot to recommend. But I wish he either cared more about these characters or their predicament and I wish he narrowed down what he wanted to say as a horror film director. Well, this is his first feature and as a writer and director. So while I didn't appreciate this film so much, I do look forward to seeing what Asta does next. This is That is Hereditary. It is in cinemas now. We'll be back shortly talking about a film you might just be able to discern from this nifty theme tune. That was the score from The Incredibles 2, one of the better scores, the not one of the better films of this year. Oh, yeah. It, it's, um, it was a reminder of when Michael Giacchino's scores were just dripping with creativity. Talking about dripping with creativity it is not this film, Incredibles 2. Oh, my yeah. God. Yeah. Why? 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 Yeah, why? 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 <laughs> we, we, we just want to start off for the saying, we promise this is not the review from the New Yorker. This is going to be nothing like that. Please, if you, no, yeah, uh, do you know, so a favor and don't is, read that review. It's, not, it's quite This awful. is not Anthony Lane 2.0, but still, like that Michael, Michael Jackson song. And they say, why? Why? Tell him that it's human nature. It's I human nature anyway, I thought to thought you were make sequels. Bad. In, yeah, bad, yeah. <laughs> I think it's human nature to... Do whatever you can to make money, whether or not it's justified. Yeah, I, I, and you're right. This film solely exists to basically get Brad Bird out of directorial yeah, hell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I was, mean, uh, I was commenting to the, to these guys beforehand the interesting way about how this movie came together. People have been demanding Brad Bird to make a sequel to The Incredibles for years, and he's always been resistant to it, wanting to make other projects, saying, you know, oh, sure, when the right story comes along. Um, look, Andrew Stanton, who directed Finding Nemo, was also asked for many years, when are we going to get Finding Nemo 2? And he always said, when the right story comes along, and pursued his own passion projects like Wall-E and then the very underrated live-action adventure film, John Carter of Mars, which turned out to be an epic bomb for Walt Disney. The kind very that, underrated. Yeah, the kind that makes you, um, that put, places you in what they refer to as director jail. No one's going to give you a chance in Hollywood, except for Disney, who still have some goodwill. Um, just you know, make the same movie again just and just us, make it not as interesting. give us Finding Nemo 2 and you'll be back in the good books. You know, you'll know, you make a ton of money for us and everybody wins. And, and Brad Bird made Tomorrowland. Brad Bird, yeah. Brad Bird made oh, Ratatouille, great oh. movie. Mission Impossible 4, which is a lot of fun. And then Tomorrowland, which is... Yeah. Yeah, landed him yeah. in, in director jail. A huge, huge budget bomb on the same level for Disney and the same level as John Carter. But... You know, Disney looks after its own. There was the door back open, and suddenly it turned out he had the, you know, the idea that it had been evading him for years for Incredibles two, but, which but turns out to be to make the same movie as the first one. But that's what really annoys me is that this movie trades on nostalgia in the worst kind of way. It kind of makes you feel nostalgic for all these characters that you've loved, and just makes them boring. Like, and I, I did not think that this family could be boring for me. I, I've loved this family, and I really cared about each every one of them, which often you find. The most difficult thing to do in these kind of action adventure animated movies, where you kind of you know even the side characters, even the the Frozones of Edna the world. Mode. Oh, Frozone's yeah. the best thing about this movie. The, and that's the thing, you know. I, I loved every family 
and every family member, yeah, yeah, every family, you know, whatever. Anna Karana, <laughs> you know, each every family, happy family is not alike, but each is unhappy in its own way. But anyway, that's that's not <laughs> wow, <laughs> well, it was strange literature <laughs> reference just references. dropped in there <laughs> casually, nicely done, nicely done. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of references being dropped, one of the things that made the Incredibles, <laughs> one of the things that made the Incredibles interesting was that it wasn't just a tribute to superhero. Um, aesthetics and and superhero comic book lore. It was also an homage to James Bond. And rewatching the Incredibles one after having seen Incredibles two, I was struck by how much more interesting and how much more flavor the world had in comparison to the second one. It's bizarre to me that that the James Bond inspired aesthetics, the gadgets, the island bases, etc., and the and the very John Barry homaging theme music by Michael Giacchino. Um, basically, the only thing that's left of the of James Bond references in this film is the score. Which is so strange to me. There are no direct references at all. Yeah, it's so strange to me because one, as I just said, James Bond gave you know, uh, homages gave the first one a lot of character and flair. But two, to lean further into the superhero thing at a time when superhero movies are at an all time high in rate of production and saturation in popular culture, just makes me think. Why is this? You know, this it makes the film feel less necessary. If anything, if they leaned into the the spy gadget thing, it would have made the film stand out from all the superhero films on the market right now. What what also makes it uh, a bit more annoying is the fact that the marketing, or at least the teaser trailer, it's kind of made it feel like this is now going to be Elastic Girl's moment. It's going to be Elastic Girl's story, and you're going to try and you know see her side of things. You're going to have her spot in the limelight. Except the actual movie completely, completely dodges that premise altogether. She was, she was more interesting in the first one. That's true as well. Which is uh, also. I think the biggest mistake this movie makes is that we pick it up right where we left the first movie. Yeah, oh like yeah. Why? Oh, it's Once again, same, it's such a bad choice. It's the same film, and I didn't appreciate this because I know I'm in a very small minority here, but I wasn't actually the biggest fan of the first Incredibles film. I remember reading the Fantastic Four and like comics like that growing up, and those were interesting. They were sincere. The Incredibles, not so much that it's derivative of it, but that it's a light parody. And for me to be a parody, you have to be acerbic and out there, be outlandish in the same way that Rain Wilson did in Super, or even something less extreme. The Incredibles, I don't feel offered anything the, new. No, the Incredible, what the Incredibles did, I, th- I think you have to rewatch it, as I've been saying to Glenn. Yeah, what, I, what the, I, 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 and I will, but uh, yeah. The, the Incredibles, I think, wasn't so much. It, it definitely has homages to the Fantastic Four and James Bond. But I think what it was really parodying and what I think this film does much worse is suburban life. It's a film about conformity and how people, you know, incredible people like the Incredibles fail to fit into the square, you know, their their round pegs going into square holes. And um, what I think was really missing in this film is the heavier drama touch. The Incredibles felt like quite dark and serious in some ways in how it depicted the marital strife and the dysfunctional family elements. This film um, doesn't have the dramatic touch that The Incredibles 1 had. They're apart for most of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, There are no scenes really depicting how the family worked together at home as, you know, were some of the best parts of the original grounding this story. Um, The Incredibles 1 felt like much more mature an approach to me and it used these slower paced scenes as I said to establish the main crisis which is the same in Incredibles 1 and 2 which is will will these characters break the rule that says that superheroes are illegal in their world in order to go to work for somebody who could potentially rehabilitate them and let them go back to the the glory years but you realize how much more sophisticated Incredibles 1 is than 2 and instead of this patient approach where we get to see their dissatisfaction with their lives and the kind of darker feel that we get in Incredibles 1. Incredibles 2 explains everything and sets up the plot of the movie in an exposition dump shortly after the opening of the film, which is so clumsy. A guy, you know, setting up something that could have been revealed over time through actual character interaction and action just through a guy giving a speech. Um, And that reminds me of something else I hated about this movie, which is the pacing. I think this is probably the fastest paced film I've ever seen. Not so much in terms of progression of the plot, but in how there's constantly someone yelling or something moving quickly, just whiz-bang. It felt like this this film is really... It felt like an extended YouTube clip. Yes, it really felt like... The hyper-real style of editing, where you're not allowing the actual action to breathe. And again, Incredibles 1 is, is actually 
it's a to- massive tonal opposite. It, it's quite slow paced at points. I wonder if um, it's felt like this is what's necessary to appeal to the kids that have been raised on these YouTube clips. Um, and this movie is very much going after kids as opposed to a all ages audience. This um, was this was the Minions to Despicable Three of the Incredibles one. But the the problem with something being so fast paced as this is it means that at a certain point it becomes just one note and one tone, which is kind of manic, wacky craziness. And I was really missing the tonal variation that could have come from varying the pace of things. Look, I'll say the things I did enjoy about this film. Uh, I did mention the score earlier. Um, the animation of the two main characters, they've gone pretty much off the old stock animation of The Incredibles. However, the two brother and si- the brother and sister introduced in this film rendered very well. There is one no. laugh out loud. Oh, no, I think they were written quite a lot better than the others. Um, the and, and also the one laugh out loud gag I did enjoy was a, a nice homage to the you know Doctor Evil volcano lair type place involving a number of couches and a number of floor panels that aren't really where they're supposed to be. All right, we we mentioned earlier that this is kind of the same plot as the first movie, but I feel like we need to be clearer on that just to point out how lazy and unnecessary this film is. The first film was about Mister Incredible going to work for a guy who can help potentially allow him to be a superhero again and help make superheroes legal. In this movie, which is set immediately after the first film, they again go to work for a villain who says, come and work for us and we'll help you make superheroes you know, legal again, which is bizarre because it is that, that all these characters do. Like immediately after they just did that, they fall for the same trick again. Um, the first movie, the Violet um, character's arc was about learning not to be shy and so she can go out with this boy on a date with this boy. And in this movie, they immediate, they open the film by erasing his memory so we can repeat the same arc of learning not to be so shy so she can go on a date with this boy. Um, it, it, the, the choice to make follow this film on immediately after um, the first film and not age the characters or develop their personality in any way makes it just feel completely unnecessary. Like, why did this movie have to exist? If they'd been at least a few years older, maybe we could have explored a different demographic. So even if the film hadn't been good, we would have at least had something that distinguishes it. Okay, so that is The Incredibles 2. It is in cinemas now. The last one we were talking about in the last few minutes, and we will be talking about in greater detail on our podcast, is Disobedience, the new film from a fantastic woman director, Sebastian Lelio. It is starring Rachel Weiss as Renette, a young woman who is the daughter of an Orthodox Jewish rabbi, Seth Haredi, on a previous episode. Excuse me, it is an Orthodox Jewish community in North London who dies in the opening minutes when he was de- delivering his Devar Torah. Spoilers! Oh yeah, sorry. This has happened. Oh, I don't think you say in the first ten minutes. I know, no, I, yeah, it's is, not. Is, it's not a spoiler yeah, at all. I was just. Oh, we just want to do annoy Glenn because he talks about spoilers all the time. <laughs> oh, I'm the one who talks about spoilers. So three. No, it's, Virat's the one who spoils. You're the one who says no spoilers. <laughs> oh, I see. So it is the fourth, fifth rule of Fight Film Fight Club. We still have remember when we used to announce the rules. <laughs> yeah. but hey, we're all about disobedience. We're all about disobedience, yeah. Um, and Whoa. she travels back after a long absence to London to meet with her childhood friends, including David, played by Alessandra Davola, who's the heir apparent to the rabbi, and he's now wife and also a childhood friend, Esty, played by Reginald McAdams, and it becomes apparent that she had to leave this community due to a relationship relationship with Esty, and it explores themes of Orthodox Judaism and, and LGBT issues, but also specifically within um, this particular Jewish community. Now, this film, I feel it is special in that it deals with a lot of issues that aren't often dealt with in mainstream cinema. And what is interesting about it is that while many parts of it are universally relatable, there I think there were parts of it that were only relatable to the extent that you have a familiarity, even a small familiarity with some of the customs or traditions or even the language invented in this film. So it is not so accessible in that sense. And I think there were parts that they're trying to make accessible, but weren't necessarily as accessible as they could have been. Yeah, Glenn explained to us before we recorded this um, a few, a little bit of the nuance um, that we were missing. So I think it's definitely true that if you have more of an understanding of Orthodox Judaism, the film will probably hit you harder. Having said that, um, I feel what they try to evince so well through some of the performances, something as simple as Rachel Weiss, uh, Renit tearing her clothing opening sequence, which is a huge Jewish significance, is also has a universal resonance. It very simply conveys yep. how she feels 
and what she is going through. But I think an important distinction to me in this film is this is about a few people and their crises of faith, one who's moving away from their faith, one who's moving towards it, and one who's experiencing a rather traditional but very emphatic crisis. So a very interesting dynamic develops between these three main characters. Um, we have to go shortly. We'll have the Sonic Assassin up next, but we will be talking about disobedience in much more detail on our podcast. Keep listening. Um, if Yeah, search us out on podcast places if you're interested in hearing about disobedience. And if you're listening to the podcast, just keep listening now. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we've got 10 seconds before our so, live broadcast well, ends. So this has been Glenn Fowling and Chris Evans of Rotten Eru. Enjoy movies. Good night. Disobey. Jurassic World. And welcome back to... Sucks. Our... Sorry, that was just to follow up my uh, Jurassic World comment that we ended the radio show with. Yeah, uh, Jurassic World. We all, get, we all get to see it. We'll see it. Fallen King- oh, yeah, yeah. No, I wasn't slamming Fallen Kingdom, which could be excellent. I'm just saying that Jurassic World sucks. But Jeff Goldblum oh, right. is amazing. Jeff, it should just be Jeff Goldblum, you know, for two I, hours. I, 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 I'd watch I mean, that movie. I, I guess he I, made Menu Log seem interesting. So, I mean, there's that. Yeah, he he could save Jurassic World too. I guess, look, I I feel like I had to start off this podcast by slamming Jurassic World to recover my credibility after, you know, as a film connoisseur apparently ending ending our last radio episode with a reference to it. So, yeah, apparently they do have Bree Stillis Howard not wearing heels in this one. That that was it was fine. It was fine the first time. Why is, I didn't realize why that was such a big controversy. Okay, you know what else? There has to be some controversy. I mean, it's it's supposed to be a big movie, and if that's the only thing they could find, it was a pretty boring thing to begin with. But I think important nonetheless. So Jurassic World. Speaking of the Jurassic Park series, you know Jurassic Park three, the underrated one. Who was in Jurassic Park three? Rachel McAdams as the Velociraptor. Oh, see, she's so good. I, she can pull it off. But no, it's Alessandro Nivola oh, okay. who plays David in this movie. Oh, so fun fact. Um, David, who play uh, David. Okay. Yeah, what is this movie now again? Disobedience. Was there we go. Disobedience. Yes. Yeah, I, I, thought, I thought like we haven't talked about disobedience for a while. World. Five. <laughs> oh dear. Um, also, just on Alessandro Nivola, uh, who plays David. Do you know what other movie he was in? The big '90s action film when he was quite a bit younger. The Matrix. Uh, no, it's about. The, it just had its twentieth anniversary. Oh, um, Saving Private Johnny Ryan? Mnemonic. Oh, uh, how good is that movie? <laughs> I saw it. Reddit. No, he played Point Break. Oh, I wish. Uh, no, Point Break is amazing. He played Bram Stoker's Dracula. <laughs> that was terrible. <laughs> it was really bad. We go to Budapest, dear Budapest. Can you name any other Keanu Reeves movies from the nineties? Uh, the Matrix. Yeah, but not that one. Um, oh, wait, uh, was Speed in the 90s? Speed was in the 90s. You, 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 right, you, you, you mean the bus that would never I mean, stop? The bus that wouldn't slow down. <laughs> is Johnny the Monarch the one where he has to put all the gigs in his head and he needs the computer yes. and he needs to go to the hotel in Tokyo to get his suits pressed? Yes. Yeah. yeah it's interesting. It's interesting. That, that's the one that popularized the word mnemonic. Like before that, I think people were just like, what is a mnemonic? Right. Like, Haven't you seen the movie? Yeah. But going back. Johnny. Johnny. <laughs> Johnny Utah. Johnny mnemonic. Oh, there's a pattern here. Johnny Neo. Yeah, Johnny J- Johnny Dracula, Johnny Wick, Johnny Wick, <laughs> Johnny Wick. <laughs> whoa, whoa, mind's blown. Yeah, but no, Alessandro Nivola, he was in <laughs> Face Off. He oh, was, yeah, do you recognize it now? Right, he yeah. played Pollux Troy. Yeah, wow. Yeah, he's the guy who's like the scary scene. Bye bye, bro. Bye bye. <laughs> in the prison, that was him. Awesome. So he's got he's got this guy's got range. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, serious yeah. range because he plays David. But no, actually, I, I enjoyed his dramatic performance in Disobedience. I mean, I did not to take away from his incredible two seconds in Face Off, but I mean, this <laughs> more in Face Off. <laughs> I mean, this was, you know, miles and miles better. And actually, like, very sensitive, uh, which I do feel I think David's arc was probably the most interesting out of all three characters in this one. So I think uh, Lelio did miss a step in trying to, f- what his focus was in terms of structuring the film. David was a very interesting character. I would go further and say that as much as I enjoyed the Renit character, Rachel McAdams, who's the best thing about this film, she should have been much more front and center. One of those two characters should have been the leads, I think, because I think they've tried to go for the audience surrogate by um, focusing the film on Rachel Weisz, who's now the outsider to this community, coming back and being reintroduced to all these characters. But I think... Rachel McAdams' character has a much more interesting um, position. You know, she's the person who, who's going through a bigger conflict. So I think the film would have been more interesting to be focused on on her, or even or even David, because yeah. 
and, and and also how Rachel McAdams underplays her character. It's so oh, Rachel McAdams is amazing. So she her, her face. There's some powerful close-ups of her face in this, it's, right? She's and, and, so and underrated. It's not unsettling. Like it's actually like you know, because sometimes when you have close-ups, you're like, oh my god, that's too close. Go, go yeah. away. You know, no, go away yeah, from she, my face. She can. She can. But she can really cap, hold she it. She can hold it. Yeah. She's and she's such got such amazing dramatic range. Can we just cast Rachel McAdams in more dramatic roles, please? Can we just like, have her in more films? In general, basically her biggest fans here, like. We, yeah. we 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 talked about Gay Knight, and in all seriousness, she is a hugely underrated dramatic actress. I think she's I think, waiting yeah. on a film like this where she is the star. She's always been Scorner. amazing, but just has been lacking the right roles. I'm glad she was it, cast. It, in isn't this. she doing a Brian De Palma kind of movie? Oh, I think so. Yeah, I hope so. Um, and also, but yeah, going back to focusing the movie more on David, he's the I, character who has the strongest arc, maybe the only real arc in this film. I, it was very special. There was one particular sequence involving David where a, I feel a tenant very central to both ancient and modern jury is explored very explicitly, but it's explored in the way that is incredibly relatable. And it's a very powerful sequence. It's one of a number in the film, which I feel was conveyed exceptionally well. As I referred to earlier, Lelio, half the film, he relies on us to assume things about elements in this community and elements and traditions which are important or significant and allows us to infer it and does so very much based on, and he relies on the power of the actors in no small extent, Nivola. And in others, I think this is where the film errs, uh, he doesn't so much rely on that, but pre- presumes an acquired knowledge of Jewish tradition and custom, which for many who will watch this film, who will be able to appreciate, certainly those who have at least an elementary grasp of Hebrew, but at the same time, many who don't, and this is certainly a very significant, although not overly huge part of the audience of this film, will not be able to necessarily engage with to the same extent. I I didn't necessarily mind that. In fact, actually, uh, I I became more curious and I wanted to then, you know, talk to Glenn about it and actually get to know more about Jewish culture and educate myself and maybe rewatch the film to get a better appreciation. So actually, I kind of do appreciate directors who don't try to spoon feed you more than they need to, and actually think audiences are smart enough to actually go out and look for their own meanings when they can. And I think that way I did appreciate the fact that the director did not yeah. assume that I needed to know more than I should. Yeah, there could have been characters saying, "What does that mean?" Well, this is a blah blah. Oh, blah, I blah, hate blah, that kind of exposition. Yeah, scene. yeah, you're you're right that it's it. That's the one thing that I will pay. Um, Sebastian Lilioan. I think he's actually quite a bad director. I was one of the biggest haters of Fantastic Woman last year. Um, and I feel in Disobedient, Disobedience works as well as it does because it allows its actors to really do the talking and he mostly stays out of the way. But I still feel that he botches the tone a little here because there are times that, like a pivotal romantic scene, where that feel a little bit overdone, for example, in the choice of the music accompanying it. Oh dear! And the, a Fantastic Woman last year was just one hundred percent overstatement the whole way through. This is way more reined in, I think, because he's working from someone else's source material. Um, but it, he still, at times, I think he either overplays or underplays things, and sometimes at the same time. So it's simultaneously a little bit too chilly and removed, and yet also just a tad over the top. It's mostly a fairly slower paced film, but. Um, there are only a few points where I feel it really comes to life and feels very engaging to me. A lot of the time, it's maybe a little bit too sleepy. I mean, in terms of the pacing, I didn't mind it for the most part. I feel there's one scene about 20 minutes in where you see a lot of elements of what has happened in this community teased out, and then suddenly it comes to a crux over one dinner sequence where everything is very, yeah, very rushed. Yeah, that was very Fantastic Womanish, and that very over the top in, like, in depicting aren't these characters bad in, to, in how they oppress our, our hero. Um, a little bit, you know... Uh, they weren't betrayed as evil. They weren't betrayed as evil, but it was still, you know, the veneer of civility in this dinner table scene has never been thinner. And I think it was a little bit over the top how they acted. It was on the nose. But for the for the most part, what the film does well is not to depict the characters who happen to be antagonists as evil. Because David is in this position, but he is very much a good person. He's just going through a crisis of faith and... And, uh, you, you know, he's a person whose core beliefs and life are, are being challenged. Um, and so he necessarily goes against what the main female characters want. Um, but it you, it never feels like this is coming from him being a bad person. And his character is never cheapened in that way. He definitely comes across as a good and moral person. 
it, it's really interesting uh, what Lelio is able to manage, which he does well, even though I do somewhat agree with Chris that I don't like his directorial style. But I think just to give a counterpoint, I think what he's able to actually do well in this film is actually something which I feel is more difficult to do in some moments, is that he's very restrained in making sure that the actual sustained dramatic tension only focuses around three main characters. Mm. I mean, this is very much a three-character movie for the most part, which, you know, you are with these three people and their moral predicaments for almost the entirety of the film, and the side characters almost do not take away from that, which is very difficult to actually manage for a movie of that kind of length. In that sense, you do get a much better fleshed-out 3D kind of perspective of all of what these people are feeling and how they interact with each other. And I and it's really interesting about how Rachel McAdams' character and Rachel Weisz's character, how they progress in their interaction, then how Rachel Weisz's character and David's character progress in their interaction, and then how Rachel McAdams and David progress in their interaction. And you can see how that definitive arc is played out in these kind of different triangular interactions. So in that sense, in that sustained way of depicting human interaction, this was a very interesting kind of focused minimalist study. What I really, and what Verrett alluded to, and I mentioned in the passing earlier, what's really special here is we're not seeing three identical narratives play out simultaneously. We're seeing three extremely different character arcs play out in conjunction and crashing against each other, which is fascinating to see. Um, Chris alluded to a real interesting element of the film, which has been the subject of a lot of commentary, which is the music sequence where they play Love Song by The Cure. Now, I think this is a pretty poor music choice because the lyrics are incredibly obvious and on the nose. You know, wherever far I stray, I'll always love you. Wherever far away, I'll always love you and that. But... And having said... You have to sing it, Glenn. Oh, I, I can't possibly do it justice. <laughs> and my favorite Cure song is Pictures of You, and that's the only one I would ever pretend oh, to sing. Someday. That's someday. A, that's a great song. I, I do love it. Yeah. But this scene, um, this is reeking with such understated, multi-layered significance that I really did appreciate it regardless. In the period following a death, you're not supposed, in Jewish tradition, you're not supposed to listen to music or watch films or listen to entertainment. So listening to it is in itself a very strong act of disobedience. And you'll notice that they tune it, it's very low, they're dancing so slightly, so subtle, subtly, they're trying to express themselves through the song they're so familiar with but can't. And all the passion or the energy that is just reaching a fulcrum throughout this film it really nailed for me it really nailed it right there the more i listen to glenn talking about this movie the more i feel like i wish i had glenn's kind of perspective and context to really appreciate how much is actually happening in this film and in that sense i feel like i do want to watch it with glenn so that I can, yeah, like, yeah. you know, because I we feel can like be our guide, yeah, yeah, the world of ultra orthodox Judaism. Oh, um, because I don't know. Because honestly, I, I think this is one of those <laughs> Friday night's still footing that, mate. <laughs> because I, honestly, I do feel I do agree with Glenn that this is one of the rare movies where I think faith as an actual tenet of dramatic tension is explored in a very understated way, mm. and you do not get because often when movies talk about religion, you get a very expositional, very on the nose, and also incredibly reductive style of, you know, shoehorning religion and, you know, tenets of religion into the narrative. But this actually film is a lot more subtle in how it explores different aspects of Judaism and Orthodox communities and how it actually affects people in that sense. And I feel I want to know more about that appreciation Mm -hmm. by watching it with someone who actually has that context. Maybe maybe this is a result of not knowing as much about the subtleties that are going on all throughout the film, but I felt like there was maybe not enough going on um, for the slow style that Lilio's chosen. I felt like I basically grasped the drama um, pretty quickly, and a lot of the slower scenes, which are about drawing out the angst in Rachel McAdams and Rachel McVice. Rachel McVice. <laughs> Rachel <laughs> McVice. Yeah. Uh, to fair, Rachel's have combined. Yeah. Rachel, <laughs> Rachel Actually, that would be... Yeah. I'm just trying to imagine what that face would look like. Maybe maybe this means I have a subconscious craving for McDonald's. <laughs> it's just, right just down the road right across from the, road, the, yeah. the studio. <laughs> Rachel, Rachel. They, don't get, they didn't give that advertising during the World Cup. Yeah. <laughs> Rachel McNuggets. <laughs> but, um, yeah. Uh, but yeah, it, it's really about sort of the slow burn t- um, tension and desire between these women. But I felt like I grasped it quicker than the film was 
expecting and I felt like it was a little bit overlabored and that the film maybe could have been 15 minutes shorter. Um, I, I do agree with the fact that the performances make the film a lot no, better, a really, lot better the performances, than it is. Uh, I mean, uh, yeah, the fact that I'm able to stay interest. with them for almost two hours and the film did not deserve that kind of runtime. I mean, it, yeah. it makes its point very clearly in, in maybe 90 minutes. Yeah, that's but, how I felt. Uh, yeah. I, I'm, but, but the fact is, even for two hours, the way that if I can stay with it and I not feel like this movie is like oh when it's when it's finishing and like you know looking at the watch and stuff it's purely because of the actual performances they're very they're more strained than the movie actually deserves if that makes any sense mm. like you know the, the, it feels like they they actually elevate the narrative from something so reductively simple to make it more profound than it actually is mm. <laughs> at moments oh yeah for sure yeah I, can we talk about, for me, one of the most impassioned scenes, I think one of the best pace scenes of this film, which is the sex scene, which has also gotten a lot of commentary on it. And it's a very restrained scene. But for me, um, unfortunately, uh, especially with male directors, there are so many scenes where it's very gazy. It's very, at least partly gratuitous. This was dealt with, I feel, a lot more sensitively. It's a different sex scene to what I generally would see in a film. We're getting into, I guess we're in semi-spoiler territory here, but... Um Oh, you know, to describe that that happens, I, mean, I guess. I don't know. I mean, oh, it's I mean obvious, if, you, if you've seen the poster of the film where they're basically yeah, you're like locked in kind of... They, we just haven't said who's in a, involved <laughs> in the scene, but... Uh, but, uh, but you know who's involved. But, but, but the thing you, is you also... also you, you know who dies in Solo, A Star Wars Story. And you know... <laughs> <laughs> Thanks to us. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, because yeah, we don't give her spoilers ever, right? Yeah. yeah. But, but, but also, like, uh, at the same point, <laughs> what I do feel like I agree with is that this movie doesn't treat the sex scene in kind of... This is not like blue is the warmest color. This is not no. It's this not is like not, super over yeah, the top. But, not at all. Um, the, look, to go back to trashing Sebastian Lilio again. Um, oh there, there, there's a point where you know it's it's getting kind of kinky, like spitting in each other's mouths. But the whole scene's been played with this really um, over the top. The score is getting like um, the, all the restraint is gone. It's like the moment of passion, high Hollywood orchestra stuff. And I felt like the combination of that that image with this music was just a bit silly. I was with the scene until that moment, and I thought it was like, it, just rein it back a little bit, Sebastian. It, 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 Lillio, it was, know? it was because actually that that's the one with the place because the actual performance by Rachel, both Rachels, because uh, in that scene was actually yeah. far more restrained than the actual music choice. Yeah, the, the, music, was, the music choice because did, the way yeah. they enacted that, it was far more personal and intimate yeah, than, the, and than the, music, the scene actually played out. Yeah, in, I, in terms of actual picturization, I feel like the way he uses music is is often unsuited and the the score has a lot it's a very restrained film visually and in terms of how limited the the drama is until i mean there's a big moment at the end it's all slow which is great um a really you know the the crux of the moral and spiritual choice in this film which is great and um but until that moment everything's very restrained and yet the music often sounds like it's the score from harry potter or something no, the score. It could have. I feel the music, was, sound design generally was not particularly well deployed in this film. But on a yeah, sound was barely a character in this. Like you don't even feel the the sense of being on the streets or like the the silence inside the synagogue. It's it's all. Oh no, I appreciated that though. It did imbue the sense of not so much calm, but lack of craziness, hecticness, which is an certainly an element of at least. Sabbath, which is uh, very strongly depicted in this film. Um, what is also, I feel, depicted quite well is, well, not depicted, but its use of symbolism is quite well deployed. Um, the use of a shtetl, the wig, in it is yeah, uh, used that was very subtle enough that I wasn't annoyed. <laughs> yeah. Um, Rachel Estes' character wears one throughout, but there's also a scene where they visit a wig shop and there's a number of mannequins with uh, the shtetls on them. And it's, I've never been in one myself, but it's a very powerful image, which I think speaks to a lot of the uh, dynamics in this film between members of these communities both to, um, from a gendered perspective. And it's, it, it's a really interesting film to like, discuss that way because it feels like the performances and... It feels like there were two different briefs. Lilio had a different brief in how he wanted to approach the film tonally, and it feels like he gave a very different brief to his actors because uh, the actors are feeling they're so restrained and they feel like they're part of a very different kind of. They almost feel like they're part of a Jim Jarmusch movie, and and uh, Lilio is kind of, <laughs> and, and Lilio is playing it up as this kind of very kind of you know I need to make the actual moral choices so obvious that people don't miss it except 
we don't miss it and actually we appreciate the fact that the tension is sustained for so, as long as it is and the actors kind of make it happen so I think in terms of that Lelio's direction kind of comes in the way a bit in terms of making it like you know it's like somebody trying to poke you with an elbow be like did you get it did you get it did you get it like I'm like yeah well, I did you know <laughs> don't make it that obvious like don't annoy me so <laughs> you know let it play out and often when the, act, the scenes played out in their normal kind of uh, they let it breathe as you would say and that kind of easy kind of breathiness and pacing allowed the dramatic sort of flair to actually be more potent and powerful than when Lelio is trying to like shoehorn it in these crescendo moments when he tries unnecessarily. This film, it, I feel Lelio showed a lot of dramatic integrity, necessarily more than he has in some of his other projects. Um, I talked earlier about how there's a subtle use of certain things in the film. Um, certainly the use of Hebrew, um, and this is very subtle, there's a, a, a very powerful sequence where a character approaches another and says, Shalom, and this has traditional meaning of saying hello, but it has multiple meanings. It also means Good, translates literally to goodbye and peace. And in this context, you could take any of those three interpretations and in conjunction and inflating them, it's a very powerful reminder of how one character has come throughout the film to see another. But there's also a really important scene early in the film where they're singing David Melech Israel, which is a Hebrew song, a child, a child song. And it says a lot about, very subtly and very powerfully, I think, I know, imperceptibly, which is my slight criticism of the film, about the dynamic between the three and how we see that evolve. And on a related note, uh, what I found interesting here was they didn't actually say, it any, they didn't give a timeline at any one point in the film of how long Renit had been away, which allows you to impress your own feelings or related experiences onto it. But she could have been away for 10 years. She could have been away for 15 years. She could have been away for 30 years if you seriously look at how this film plays out. And I appreciate that they had the integrity to just leave that open. I think a little more relatable to that effect. Yeah, I agree. I think um, it is nice that the film chooses to underplay things and basically carries it off. But, you know, I actually could have dealt with a two-parter, you know, once upon a time in America as kids and then as adults thing because, like, wouldn't it be interesting to... Oh, yeah. Yeah, wouldn't it have been interesting to see the way that David fits into this community and what his relationship with um, with the two women was when they were kids? Like, I, I think it, it definitely works, you know, implied and left up to the audience's imagination, but I feel like it could have been a fascinating study into the makings of the the women they've become and also the dynamics of the community. I agree completely. Yeah, and it's interesting in terms of the crisis of facing and with David especially. Uh, we, we kind of see him as a fully formed, you know, his ideas are already quite stringent by the time we meet him. Uh, whereas like both Rachels that we meet, they, they are still wrestling with their uh, sort of like, where do they actually stand? So often I feel David's journey, even though it's from certainty to uncertainty, I would have liked to have seen the whole three, three, you know, part or arc of going from uncertainty to certainty and back to uncertainty again. Mm. Kind of nice circular structure as to like, you know, how did he arrive at the point of him being sure about all these things before he was, you know, much more impressionable youth and seeing how his ideas became fully formed and actually took shape and then became uncertain again. Whereas like both Rachel's begin with uncertainty and they end with some kind of certainty which they needed to begin with. So they had a much simpler journey and David towards... His, he could easily have been the centerpiece of the film because I'm, I know people might say this is a woman's story being given to a man once again, that the criticism I can see coming all too easily, but I would disagree. I think this is really this was the story of a man's crisis. Yeah, actually, and, uh, I, I agree because uh, even though we, we somehow seeing the women's perspective, it is... Uh, eventual agency is with the man. Like, you know, it, yeah. it, it is about the man's agency. It's about eventually David's crisis, which is the center point yeah. of the actual dramatic tension. Exactly. And to go back to what I was saying earlier, if it were focused on Rachel McAdams' character, um, what was her name again? Esti? Esti. Yeah, Esti. If it were focused on Esti, I think um, it could have gone much deeper into the psychology of should I stay or should I go? Should I obey or should I disobey? Exactly. The, Rachel McAdams... Sorry, Rachel Weiss is the least interesting presence to which, center this film around. She's which, both the, like the weakest actor, and she's a, she's a good actor. This is not meant as a slam, but the other two are much more magnetic. I feel that I mean I've got to say just how resonant your earlier comment was that I could would gladly have watched a three hour film in three parts talking about 
this is the center part of the film, yeah. the earlier part, and then even a later, 30 years from then, what happened? I would, yeah. I would think that would be much more resonant. It'd be an amazing um, exploration of faith and the way it shapes you and the way it changes throughout your life. It, it, it's interesting to then, you know, look back at The Wild Pear Tree, which also had a very interesting discussion of faith. And I, I'm, I'm really... Very different approaches. Yeah, there, but there was probably more dialogue in the scene in The Wild Pear Tree <laughs> where people discuss faith than there was in this entire film. I, I agree. But also at the same time, I'm kind of really happy about the fact that we're discussing faith in mainstream cinema I am too, a, a, as so. faith rather than you know as religion or as man-made constructs but actually where people stand and how they interpret yes, exactly. matters of faith Glenn, which I, is very interesting I think you'd really like the scene in The Wild Petri because it's an, a mature exploration of faith which is where you've got um, a progressive um, a progressive Muslim a conservative Muslim and an atheist talking and it's not just people trying to score points over each other they're grappling with what each other is is saying and and, and it's a whole extended 40 minute discussion so it's like it's it's, when, when when that scene was unfolding I was just like in awe of the fact that hang on this is an entire chapter in this movie and mm. it, it's it's a, it's an aside, but still such a wonderful like it that alone could be a short film. Yeah, because the discussion about faith, as we've been alluding to in popular culture, is usually does no one any favors and is no. usually quite cheap and quite crass. I keep thinking of a much poorer example of this when it was raised in the Big Sick, and we see references throughout. But I like that they took the time to, even though they could have taken longer to explore it. And I will seek out the Wild Pear Tree uh, before I seek out the Incredibles again. I will I will see both, but I. I do want to seek out this film. Uh, I think two other points, last two points I want to make about this film. Um, there is an important scene earlier involving uh, her visit to her father's grave, which is yet to be consecrated. It's a pile of dirt, as is tradition. And later, um, after so many months, after you've had a time to reckon with your understanding of the individuals passed away and what they meant and um, some other spiritual factors that do come into play, then you put up traditional gravestones. So the, the scope of when the film takes place is in the immediate weeks following. So it is literally just a pile of dirt with little sign to say, this is this person. Um, there is a encapsulation and realization of tradition in a way that I think more than anything else in this film is incredibly relatable and universally so and very moving. I don't want to say much more about it because I think it would encourage you to see the film, but um, that was um, incredibly special. And the other... Uh, once again, I, I want to see this movie with Glenn because, like, yeah, I, I feel like I feel like the way Glenn has very, seen this very movie, kind. Thank you. The, the way the way Glenn has seen this movie makes me want to, yeah, like, re- really go back and re re reappraise and appreciate what all I've missed. It reveals or, or, so much. or at least at least like I've seen it, but I haven't really seen it. You know, it reveals, I haven't really actually yeah. understood what it really meant. There's so much more depth to this, clearly, if you have grounding. In the cultural background, being and, and, and for the first time, like without being cynical, I'm I'm actually truly humbled because I want to know and I want to really understand that. I feel like I'm great. It's a great thing if movies can do that. I think it is, and that's very special. Thank you. And I would like to watch this film again with friends. And I think it's an amazing film to share, particularly with members of um, interreligious communities that I do know. Um, one thing I'll say on a more general note about this is, I think today in cinema. There is a lot of controversy over a lot of films as to who can make, who can tell particular stories. And sometimes it is said that or films are criticized because a member of a particular community or background is not telling a story that is centered on um, in the film or that it should feature or at least have more creative input from more people of a particular background if they're telling a story of that or relevant to that background. Um, in relation to this film, there are a number of uh, prominent people who are Jewish who are involved. Rachel Weiss is Jewish. Um, I don't believe Rachel McAdams is. I'm not sure about the director. I, I don't think the director is, but I think he worked, in addition to it being written by, the novel being written by a Jewish person, I think he collaborated with a Jewish woman on the screenplay, I think, which to ensure the cultural authenticity. Yes, I, I, I believe that's correct too. And also Navalo, I don't know if he identifies Jewish. He certainly has Jewish background. Um, the point I'm trying to make is that it means a lot, I think, especially to someone like myself from my background, that people are willing and open to telling these stories and to engage with these stories. So um, I'm grateful for it. Yeah, and on that note, it would have been so easy to just completely trash the Jewish faith and community with this kind of subject matter to say, you know, how can it be so restrictive it damages someone's life? To when, there is the degree of that in showing how SD feels trapped um, through something she's been born into. But I think the film does the service to its characters of taking the faith seriously and not just using it as a punching bag. 
I think so too. So that is disobedience. Edison Cinemas. Now, thank you both for the discussion. It's been one of my favorite ones, actually. Of I think we've done on the show. It's really good when we actually come together and and not trying to be you know scoring points over each other, which I think the film taught us to <laughs> but not it, do. But uh, yeah, that's true. But I think also um, it's fun to score points over movies like The Incredibles <laughs> two and Hereditary. Yeah, and maybe Jurassic. Maybe Jurassic World. Is, we'll see next we'll, week. We'll see. The reviews haven't been great. Wow. Yeah, but a, but a friend of mine said it was really good. So yeah. who knows. From the Fallen Kingdom to the Fallen IQ. Uh, yeah. yeah. Where, where, where do they go from here? I mean, just, just Jeff Goldblum hanging out with dinosaurs. <laughs> Velociraptor could have space. maybe a Jeff Goldblum dinosaur hybrid. Uh, oh. Velociraptor? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the T-Rex, but with like Jeff Goldblum face. The Bloomasaur. Bloomasaur. A post-apocalyptic world just... Uh, you know, encapsulated entirely by Jeff Goldblum dinosaur clones. You know that um, this idea might sound bizarre, but I'm not pulling it from nowhere because the original plan for Jurassic Park 4, um, they incorporated a bit of this in the ultimate Jurassic World that we got by having the dinosaur hybrids. But the initial plan, the initial screenplay that gave birth to that idea of dinosaur hybrids was about dinosaur slash human hybrids, which I'm not making this up, um, Walter Salas wrote this this script, and his plan was um, for the. Uh, hang on, I'm going to have to Google that it was. Yeah, there's because it was based on my correct novel, but there's a few. Honestly, we talked earlier this year about how Star Wars can't be any of them ridiculous genres. Why can't they make Jurassic World? I mean, apparently they tried this one to make a horror film, but it doesn't quite stick. Oh, At least really? turned to horror in the second half, like a. And, and but, what, but why? Like I, I used to, I I fall in fell in love with dinosaurs with like the original Jurassic Park series and they weren't scary even like the scary ones were like oh cute tiny little hands you know you know. so it wasn't about like oh my god scary dinosaur it's more like oh cute dinosaur I, I was you not know? scared of dinosaurs as a kid I think maybe it was Toy Story or something but oh, or I, di- I, I, or di- I, I, remember the show Dinosaurs yes yes I did Yeah, I, I was scared of Toy Story though I was scared, scared of, of Buzz Lightyear I was scared of Buzz Lightyear Buzz of... isn't scary he's he's, he's our guy no no yeah but like you know he had the whole wings and stuff okay and yeah. I, okay I need to um clarify what I was saying. I was saying Walter Salas and I was like, no, 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 that's not right. Um, it was No, it was John Sales, I think. Hang on. Is this the one? The, who's the guy who... Oh, God, I wish I could remember. Um, who, the guy who directed The Driver. This I'm embarrassing the myself. Driver. Yeah, I'm embarrassing myself with... Um, and, the, and he worked on the script for Alien. I'm embarrassing myself oh, with my Oh, my God. Of, Aliens is at the Ritz in 70mm, three screenings in uh, August. I'm totally going to that. I've got my, I've got my tickets already. Walter really Hill. Excited. I think it was Walter Hill. Right. He wrote this yep. ridiculous script for Jurassic Park 4 that was about m- merging dinosaur and human DNA in, um, in order to create SWAT teams made up of dinosaurs, which were then put into the missions that humans couldn't... Uh, handle so it was like dinosaurs busting drug dealers, dinosaurs going in to rescue kids in terrorist scenarios. I'm not making this up. This would have been the best movie ever. <laughs> I would actually watch that. It's so good, right? You know, like Dino, like Sicario Three. Yeah, it, it, they use elements of this in Jurassic World, which is the same movie that's gone through millions and millions of rewrites. In that, yeah, first of all, the dinosaur hybrid concept, but secondly, having a man like leading the team of dinosaurs. Can you we kind of see elements of that in Chris Pratt with the Velociraptors? Yeah, but, in but Jurassic also, World. but also like you know, dinosaur hybrids with like other dinosaurs. It's boring. I know they they toned it down for mainstream appeal. I think. Can you imagine? This a has film? a lot of mainstream appeal. I would watch it <laughs> like a Taylor Sheridan type thriller where it's really serious and sincere and then suddenly it maintains that tone except dinosaurs enter proceedings and instead of just like <laughs> people are just confused like oh my god it's a cute dinosaur they're just running for their lives like Nicolas Cage you know, or Jean-Claude Van Damme just walked in you know in like Wind River you know when uh, who's that the, the, Jeremy the, Renner yeah, yeah the shitty Avenger that's, that's right oh, yeah. he, he was busy playing tag we all know no, this we, now okay, okay. so when Jeremy Renner goes out to you know find this the beast you know, in, in, in the snow, and he finds a dinosaur hybrid instead. Uh, yeah, that would be a good twist. Uh, I'd, I'd like that. I'd okay, watch. so to clarify again, it is John Sayles. Not, it's, not, uh, <laughs> it's, yeah. It almost doesn't matter who the writer is. Hang on, reading. The concept is amazing. I'm reading, I've just Googled this now. Um, it features soldiers of fortune, drug dealers, and Swiss supervillains, in addition to all the typical dinosaur action. Um, How did they not make this movie? Like, like yeah. what were they thinking? Like Swiss supervillains? Like uh, yeah, well, the the, mon- the dinosaurs. The, I think the the Swiss supervillain was. I read about this years ago. I think he was trying to um, merge. Like he kidnaps the main guy, and then uh, the guy. It's like I'm going to kill you, Mister Bond, unless you lead my <laughs> team of dinosaurs. Whoa! But like the Swiss, in, though they're the most harmless people on earth. Have you seen Roger Federer? 
Oh, you want to oh, we got back onto Roger Federer. Maybe it's time we wrapped up for the week. So this has been Film Fight Club. Uh, this has been Glenn Falcon, Chris Evans, and Virat Nehru. We'll be back next week talking more movies. We're talking another film from... We, we promise we're going to stop talking about City Film Festival films, even if they are a mainstream release. We'll be back next week with the second of our 48 annual non-City Film Festival episodes talking about Foxtrot. And also, we'll be talking about, oh, Taylor Sheridan. This is convenient. Sicario, Day of Soldado. Have you watched the original recently? I still quite like it. I have not watched it since it came out in cinemas, but I think it's a good film. But, um, yeah, it's going to be interesting without the touch of Denise Villeneuve, who I think was the most extraordinary thing about the original Sicario, the way it was filmed and the way it was staged. Oh, the music. And the music Actually, every, as well. Everything just came yeah. together. Sheridan's screenplay, Del Toro, in one of his best roles in probably 10 years. Blunt. And Brolin yep. in a non-one-dimensional character. Yeah, so um, we we no longer have the composer or director of the original working on this, who added so much flavor, so we'll have to see. And it's almost July, which means Wimbledon is back on us. <laughs> and, and Roger Federer is going to be going for his 21st Grand Slam, which I'll be hoping and waiting with. Who? You know. What? Well, what? Anyway, no, tennis. anyway, tennis on grass. That's the way tennis is supposed to be played. The only way tennis should be played. Good. <laughs> So Glad that, we've established this. What do you think of the red clay in um, in uh, McEnroe's game in McEnroe Realm of Perfection to break our promise about not talking about SFF <laughs> films? Look, it really was not a surprise that one of my favorite films from SFF. It's really good, actually. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, it's about tennis, yeah. and it's not going to come to cinemas near you because it's way too quirky in French. Uh, yeah, and a lot of 16mm footage, which I was really like surprised by how amazing and clever and it, it paints a really interesting picture of McEnroe than the usual British American media used to paint. But yeah. Anyway. Oh, yeah. It does. Um, but we're we're just refusing <laughs> to wrap up today <laughs> because we're, it's like we love you too much. Just stay with us. So yes, we will be back next week. Have a wonderful night, and we will talk to you more. Maybe maybe go and see Jurassic World if two the fallen of Fall, Kingdom Fallen Kingdom Kingdom has fallen Kingdom of something um, Kingdom of the Crystal. <laughs> oh no! No, no <laughs> we're done. In, enjoy movies. Good night. Enjoyed Indiana Jones. Skull. <laughs> Don't even joke about that. Oh, we talked about this in our flash. We talked about this ten years ago. <laughs> oh my god, we were refusing. <laughs> we just, yeah, we we had, you you may not know this about us. We had a pilot episode in two thousand and eight, and it took ten years for two SCI to get around to listening and checking if people responded well or not. But it went to air exactly ten years it, after exactly the date right. on sixteenth of May. When yeah, you yeah, yeah. Okay, we this has gone on way too long. We sent okay. it forward in time. We're, we're cutting it. Nope, have, nope, this we're is done. It. We're done. Oh, bye. Oh. We've been kicking off air, off air! Bye! Bye!